Be quiet. 
God, you're so good. David, the psalmist says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, he goes on to say. And in your name, I will lift up my hands to you. Isn't that good, church? You know, the one thing that we all have in common here this morning with a, a diverse group of people is that we have been given the command to bless and to praise God in every season of our soul. Whether you're in the highest of highs right now or whether you're in the lowest of lows or perhaps for most of you, you're in the middle, right? Because we live our life mostly within the middle and those, those moments are so formative. I, I wasn't gonna share this, but I think I need to. Because I've allowed the spirit of God to work in me as I live life in the middle, when my wife had her stroke in 2017, I wasn't full of anxiety or fear. I went into that hospital emergency room with my Bible and I prayed and I worshiped God. I began to bless God in that season. And let me tell you what, because of the formative moments of church just like this, day in and week in and year in, I had a settledness in my heart. I got an amen right there. I can, <laughs> yeah, the Lord is good. It's in these moments right here, friends, in the middle where we begin to bless and we begin to praise God that the Lord does something in us whether we feel it or not. So can I just encourage you here this morning, the same step of faith that you took to enter into this door and the same step of faith that you begin to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in him in your heart, it's that same step of faith I want you to take to bless God this morning. Don't be a person who just reads the screen and reads the songs, but be a person who, from the overflow of their heart, their mouth is going to bless and honor God. Can I hear an amen here, church? In the highest of highs and in the lowest of lows and in the middle of life, we will be a people who bless and honor God. So that is my encouragement. That is my call, my appeal to each and every one of you today. Don't be a person who holds back, but give God praise in every season of your soul. Friends, let's do that by reading Psalm 34. Let's read the scriptures together. Let us be called into worship. Let's read. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Read that again. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's continue to worship, friends. We got a new song we want to introduce to you here this morning. So when you pick it up, sing out with us. Blessed are those who run to Him, who place their hope and confidence in Jesus. He won't forsake them. Blessed are those who seek your face, who bend their knee and fix their gaze on Jesus. He'll sing their own name. Oh, come on and praise the Lord with me. Sing if you love his name. Come on and let your 
blessed. Blessed are those who walk with him, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage with Jesus. They'll see his glory. Blessed are those who die to live, whose joy it is to give it all for Jesus and for him. season of the soul we can say bless God in the sanctuary bless God in the fields of plenty bless God in the darkest valley every chance I get I bless your name bless God when my hands are empty bless God with the praise that costs me bless God when nobody's watching every chance I get I sing it again Bless God in the sanctuary. Bless God in the fields of plenty. Bless God in the darkest valley. Every chance I get, I bless your name. Bless God when my hands are empty. Bless God with the praise that costs me. Bless God when nobody's watching. Every chance I get, I bless your name. Bless God when the weapons falling. Bless God when the walls are falling. Bless God cause he goes before me. Every chance I get, I bless your name. Bless God for he holds the victory. Bless God for he's always with me. Bless God for he's always worthy. Every chance I get, even when the weapons fall, we sing. Bless God when the weapons for me. Bless God when the walls are falling. Bless God, cause he goes before me. Every chance I get, I bless your name. Bless God, for he holds the victory. Bless God, for he's always with me. Bless God, for he's always worthy. Every chance I get, I bless your name.
Come on, let's bless him. Let's magnify him. For you are worthy of it all. For you are worthy of it all. For from you are all things. And to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. You be the worship leader of your life. Sing it. You are. Church, we're gonna we're gonna stay in this place here for a few minutes. <clears throat> Seth Dunn started something. It's very difficult for me to get into the presence of the Lord when we're talking about how worthy Jesus is and to withhold something for myself. It's very difficult. It's challenging. And it's challenging because over the course of 30 years of running after Jesus with everything inside of me, Jesus has, by the grace of God, revealed different dimensions of his worth to my life. And what I want to encourage us to do here for a few moments, because we have one more song on the set list that we're going to go into, but we need to stay here for a few minutes. Because I believe there's something the Holy Spirit's trying to teach us, as Seth was talking about forming us in the valley forming us in the middle of high seasons and low seasons. And that very simply is this. There are things that praise can do in your life that nothing else can do. I'm telling you. And if I had time, I would walk you through different moments of my life where I didn't know how I was going to get through those seasons. And I thank God for the word and I'm a man of the word and I preach the word and proclaim the word and I Pray the word over my life. And there are things that, that the word does in my life that other things cannot do. Are you hearing me today? And I thank God for the ability to prophesy and participate with the promise of the word and to link and yoke my faith together in agreement with what the word says. But, but friends, there is something called a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise. We find this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, where it says, let us then through Jesus continually offer a sacrifice of praise. 
And the reason why it's called a sacrifice is because it's a sacrifice, because it costs you something. But what you will find, beloved, as you live with God for a little bit, is that when you get to those places when everything is, all hell is breaking loose in your life, when the bottom is falling apart, when you're steeped in disappointment and discouragement, you've got no strength or energy in your soul, I'm here to tell you that God has given us a tool, a resource. He's given us a weapon. It's one of the reasons we sing the kind of songs that we sing. What's happening in this moment is we are training you for when you find yourself all alone. Are you catching this? We are training you. We're training you. There will come a moment in your Christian life where you find yourself without a choir, without a worship leader, Spotify isn't working, and you have to have a song inside of you. That's why we're singing these songs. So that in that dark moment of your life, you can lean in and you can begin to sing again, and there is a sacrifice of praise that is released that literally breaks things open. Acts chapter 16, we find that Paul and Silas are actually in a literal prison. And at midnight, they begin to sing songs unto the Lord. That's called a sacrifice of praise. That's called them tapping into a revelation of the glory and the goodness of God that is greater than their current circumstance. And here's what happens. When you do that, things move. Things shake. Things open. I know you're here and some of you are going, well, pastor, that's not my personality. Listen, it's fine. It's fine. You can be a quiet personality and still give God a sacrifice of praise because it has less to do with personality and it has to do with your guts. Friends, I want to challenge you as a part of this family, as a part of this house, learn how to worship God with your guts, right? Like we've got to move beyond Hosanna integrity worship. Don't be offended. I like Hosanna and Tegra. I'd praise God for them. But there is, and what I mean by that is, we're not here just to be cute with our worship. We're here to release something from the bowels of our being, from the innermost parts of our being. If you don't ever get to a place in your worship where it hurts your belly, if you don't ever get to a place where you ugly cry, like you're missing out on something. And I'm not trying to fabricate anything here. I'm just trying to teach you about something that is very, very valuable in the Christian faith. And that is learning how to give God a sacrifice of praise that is excruciating, that moves your entire being. So here's what I want us to do. Seth, you go wherever you want and don't skip that last song because we need that last song. But let's lean in a little bit, friends. All right, take our masks off. Don't worry about who's around you. And let God unlock something inside of your praise today. Yeah, we lean in today, Lord. You're so worthy. Come on, church, let's go together. You're so worthy. Oh, you're so worthy. You're so worthy, God. you
throughout all of eternity, the angels have been singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. One more time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is who you are, God. You're the Holy One, the uncreated one, the eternal one, the worthy one, Jesus. Holy Spirit, in this moment, would you do what only you can do, what no song can do, what no wingman can do? Would you reveal Jesus and his beauty and his worth and his holiness and his magnificence to us today? Holy Spirit, we need revelation. Holy Spirit, we need revelation. We stand in the place of needing revelation today. We don't even know how to worship you rightly. We must have revelation of the beauty and the worth and the majesty of Jesus. Oh, God, open our eyes afresh and anew. God, forgive us for our complacent worship, God. Lord, forgive us for making ourselves spectators. Oh, God, thrust this house into radical worship. God, thrust this house into costly worship, oh God. Oh, we open up our mouths and we open up our hearts today and we pour our worship on you, Jesus, because you're worthy, because you're worthy, because you're worthy. You're the only one worthy, Jesus. And you have always been worthy and you will always be worthy. So we bless your name today in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Ah. Yes, Lord. Come on, church. Breathe that in real deep. Just breathe it in. Breathe it into your belly. Ah. Ah. Amen. Amen. Have a seat in the presence of the Lord today. There was a day and an age when and I don't even know how this came about, where there was this mindset, this mentality in churches that the praise and the worship was the precursor to the word. How many of you guys have ever heard that, whether explicitly or implicitly, that whatever church you were in, it was like, oh, this is the warm-up. Y'all, this ain't the (laughs) warm-up. This is the thing. (laughs) This is the thing. Like we are standing in the holy presence of God and the only appropriate thing to do, listen, the only appropriate thing is to respond. To respond in singing, in kneeling, in clapping, in shouting, in getting quiet, in crying. That is the only appropriate thing to do for the people of God, right? 
By the way, there are people that don't know the Lord. They're watching your worship. And that doesn't mean you got to put on a show. It just means be authentic. Give him your best. Amen? Amen? Amen. Hey, I got a very quick word for you. I'll be really, really quick. Somebody laughed. (laughs) I'm going to try to be really, really quick. Bobby, you can find Romans chapter 8 for me, verse 1 and 2. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. I think this is for somebody. And Tori, if it's okay, my voice is a little thin this morning. At the expense of hurting the ears of the people, will you just give me a little bit more volume so I can hear myself? I appreciate that. Romans 8, verse 1 and verse 2. Scripture says, therefore, there is now, say now, there is now, say now again, no condemnation. Now, there is no condemnation. Not later. Now, now, now today, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anybody in Christ Jesus in this house? And here's why. Verse 2 says it. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Here's the really quick word. I think there are some of us in this room that are carrying condemnation. Shame and condemnation. And beloved, that is the language and that is the tactic of the enemy. That is what he does to steal your joy and your confidence in the presence of the Lord. That's what he does to steal your voice. That's what he does to steal your access into the holy presence of God as he tries to heap up upon you shame and condemnation, reminding you of everything you did that you shouldn't have done this week or this morning or everything that you didn't do that you should have done this week or this morning. And beloved, listen, we're just not going to give the enemy the time or the day to steal what rightfully belongs to you and to God. And it's not like we're not powering up. We're, we're resting, verse 2, we're resting in what he has already done. Right? There is no mistake, there is no sin, there is no generational cycle, there is no curse, there is no sinful pattern, there is no word that you spoke, there is no attitude that you walked in that has the ability or the power to keep you out of the presence of God unless you allow it. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. Beloved, you are not condemned. You are not condemned. The Father loves you. And the very best place that you can be in your life with all of your junk is right in the very face of God. And when you make that mistake, you have two choices. You can run from God or you can run to God. And you can always run to God. Always, always, always. Let me pray for you today. Lord, in the name of Jesus, any of us that are in this room that are carrying shame and condemnation, And it has become a barrier and an obstacle to seeing you rightly. Lord, I pray today that it would be shattered with the revelation of the truth of Jesus. That grace and freedom and life and liberty would flow to your people. That we would see you rightly. And God, that we would see ourselves rightly. And that we would find ourselves at home in the presence of the Lord. I pray it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, with that being said, beloved, those of you who are givers and those of you who give... I just bless you and your giving today. 
And I will encourage you to give in the spirit of grace and liberty. Do not give out of a spirit of condemnation or fear or obligation or manipulation. Give out of the liberty that comes through Jesus. There are four ways that you can give, and I trust that you know what those are by now. So I bless your giving. Um, We're going to pray over our kids right now. Bring our kids in close. We're going to send them up to their assignment upstairs. Zion, you can come up here if you want, buddy. All right, we're going to bless our kids by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Let's do it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 Jonathan, are you about ready? Can you be ready? Guys, I want us to do this because we lingered in the presence of the Lord a little while. I want you just to be like a 30-second get up, hug your neighbor, stretch, do a jumping jack, slap a high five, and then we're going to jump right back into the word. This is your 10-second warning. (laughs) Christ is risen. He is risen risen indeed. Man, Tori gave me that same help he gave Pastor Jade. I can feel the volume. I'm trying this out, guys. We're going to see if sitting works. I don't know. Uh, I do want to give one announcement. It was going to be in the video. Today is the launch of table groups, the long-awaited launch of table groups. So we are coming out of the bleak midwinter where loneliness has prevailed for so many back into the table group season. And there's lots that you can learn about table groups. I'm going to give you the essentials right now. The table group semester starts in a couple of weeks and will run through the month of May. I believe we have 26, if not 27 groups. Yes, there are a couple of groups that we're still working on a few details, so they're not on the registration yet, but we're going to keep promoting all the way through next Sunday. So uh, here's my one appeal after the table group launch in the fall. The one thing we learned is we made such a push that we were about at 85% full capacity after the second service the first week. And what we learned about three weeks into table groups is that a handful of people registered for two and three and four groups. Or, hey, hey, there's no judgment, but what did happen, okay, 
But what did happen was we had a bunch of groups that filled up with people who didn't end up coming. So what I want to ask you is please bum rush the table and go out there and please sign up for a group. But make sure, look at your schedule. If you sign up for a group on Tuesday nights and every third Tuesday night you know you have something, don't sign up for a group on Tuesday nights because you're taking the place of somebody else who could be in that group. But hopefully we have groups for all of you to be able to accommodate and we're working to add even a couple of more this week. So that's your big announcement. Uh, we are in our second installment in a series on the book of John. Last week, Pastor Jay did an awesome job through the pro... Yes, Miss Connie. But it was true, it's true. On the prologue, the beginning of the book of John, which is different than any of the other gospels, preaching about Jesus as the Son of God, as the foundation for everything that is in the gospels. And a couple of things we need to know about John before we jump into John chapter 2 today and some, a couple of stories if we have time. The first thing is that John takes more chronological liberties than any of the other gospel writers. Meaning that John is not just capturing history, John is perhaps most of all trying to tell a story, even make an argument. So John is not making things up, but he is taking literary liberties. Man, I've been stressing about putting those two words together all morning long and I got them out. We're going to be okay, friends. We're going to be okay. My help is here because Ken told me right before. So the literary liberties that John is taking is unto an argument. Now, I didn't give the guys. I think I'm losing the chair. Here we go. I think I'm losing the chair, friends. At the end of the book of John, Pastor Jade read this last week. I didn't give it to them, so it won't be on the screen. But if you want it for your own perusing, John chapter 20, verse 31, John tells us. At the end of the book, he tells us his agenda. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John has a twofold agenda here. One is John is wanting to prove to us who Jesus is and subsequently what the life that he has come to give is like so that when we see it and when we receive it, we can recognize it. He's not just trying to make an intellectual heady argument so that we all, you know, in some weird Gnostic way have this mental ascent where we just say, Jesus, I believe in you and we keep going about our lives. But John is even telling the stories in such a way that we learn to recognize the life of God lived out in the life of Jesus, which here's the secret, is what he means for you and for me if we believe in his name. So by believing in his name, literally our lives are changed because the life of God is now being infused to our life. Another way of saying this, that the church fathers have said it, is deification, which is being drawn into the life of God. We as Christians believe that Father, Son, and Spirit as one have existed for all of eternity in mutual submission and mutual communion. That's in a nutshell, the theology of the Trinity. I didn't really do it justice, but for this morning's, you know, sermon, this is what you need to know, okay? And John is saying, if you believe, and not just mental assent, but you believe by placing your trust in Jesus Christ, guess what? You are now drawn into that life. That's the miracle in the book of John. So John tells us this 
all here at the end, but John is painting this picture right from the beginning. The beginning. So he gives us what he gives us in the prologue, and like Pastor Jade mentioned last week with the symphony, that there are these motifs, there are threads that are going to be throughout the entire book that John alludes to, alludes with an A. He points forward in the beginning of the book. He's pointing forward to all of these things. And one of the things John is pointing forward to, two times in verse 14 and verse 17 in chapter 1, he says that Jesus' glory is revealed and he is the one who is full of grace and truth. And so this morning, let's now turn to John chapter 2. We're going to read the first half of the book. Excuse me, we are not going to do that. We would run out of time quickly. The first half of the chapter, excuse me. First half of the chapter together, it will be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, use it. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Boy, I'd have got slapped. And I know Sidron would have too. Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother, this is, man, this verse has messed with me. And his mother looks, and, looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so that they, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. It's amazing, y'all, this is in Holy Scripture. You read this right now? (laughs) But you have saved the best till last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Scriptures And most importantly, what you want to communicate to us for the sake of being transformed ever more presently into your image. God, whatever is locked up, unhealed, unwhole, or resistant to the life of God in us this morning, we ask that you would open it up, touch it, heal it, and make it whole today. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And together we say, Amen. Amen. Some of you will have grown up in a church context like mine. If you've been here a while, you've heard enough stories to know pretty conservative Pentecostal culture. And I had, by and large, a wonderful childhood and upbringing. My parents are amazing. My grandparents are amazing. The more I talk about my extended family, it just makes me want to tear up because of the legacy that I inherited, particularly in the spirit. But Pentecostals had a motto, and I want to read this motto to you. The motto goes something like this, don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or hang out with those who do. John chapter 2 was not exactly on the same level as Acts chapter 2 to us, if you know what I'm saying. 
But it was one of my favorite passages as a kid because it gave me liberty to dream <laughs> what Jesus might actually be like a little bit, you know. It gave me liberty to ask questions, to ask probing questions. Hey, don't get upset at me. I'm just, this is John's words, okay? John chapter 2. But I was raised in a culture where, honestly, we really didn't talk about this story very often. And when we did, we sterilized it. And we sterilized it greatly. We made it all about the prophetic act of Jesus and completely ignored what he actually did for the people. Or we said something funny about, you know, turning it into wine, which is actually grape juice. They didn't have, you know, Greek translation for grape juice back in the day. Who knows, whatever. But friends, I want to look at if we believe that what John is doing is making the argument that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that we might receive life when we entrust ourselves into his name, then this story has something to tell us about A, Jesus' humanity and his divinity, and also B, what his life is like. And I don't think we should ignore that. And on top of everything else, this story is the first one after this prologue and then a setup about John the Baptist with, a, with one other little story in between, that this is the introduction to Jesus' public ministry. This is not just one of 75 things that happened in the book of John. It's the first thing. It's actually the thing that propels him into his public ministry. So I think there are a number of things that this story shows us. And the last thing I want to mention about the book of John before we get into a laundry list of things about this story is that more often in the book of John, John is more interested in showing us than just telling us. Half the things Jesus says in the book of John don't make any sense, at least not on the surface. Of course, they make sense in, once you start to dig. But on the surface, they don't really make any sense. And he confounds people like he does in the other gospels, but it seems to happen in John even more often, where Jesus says things that just make people go, huh? But it's because what John is doing is he's showing us Jesus is the one who embodies grace and truth. And grace and truth are so complex and so beautiful that words can't just tell us about them. Jesus has to show us. So what does this story show us about the grace and truth of Jesus? Well, the first is that Jesus is prolonging a party to enhance the joy. Don't let that get past you. That the life of God that is given to those people some 2,000 years ago and the life that God means for you and for me means that he wants us to enjoy life. That's not all this story is about, but it certainly is part of it. That God doesn't want us to be the kind of people who just drudge through life and, oh, God, one, guy, one day God's going to change it all and make all things new. Absolutely he is. And when you're in the valley, sometimes if that's all you confess, that's plenty good enough. But life is meant to be lived to the full. And Jesus shows us that right here. This is not like some fictitious thing. Jesus actually turns water into wine to prolong a party. Like I mentioned, Pentecostals weren't very good at partying. We were good at lots of things. We were great at church services, y'all. We were great at corporate singing. We were great at amening and participating in the services. But when you don't dance and you don't drink 
and you don't hang out with those who do, you're not very good at partying. So when we would have parties, they'd be like an hour long. But Hebrew Jewish parties were a week long, and they were communal. These wedding celebrations would go on and on and on for days. And when the wine ran out, the party's over. So Jesus turns water to wine literally to prolong a party. Don't miss that. The second thing this shows us about Jesus' grace is that he's preventing a groom and his family from being shamed. Jesus is preventing a groom and his family from starting the marriage off on the wrong foot. This is a serious deal back then. To us, this is not near as big of a thing. Some people have tiny weddings. Some people get married in a courthouse. Some people throw huge weddings and lots of money at it. And most of us don't think twice after the wedding is over about the state of the wedding and what happened or didn't happen. But in this society, it was a thing that you did for your small community. It wasn't just the bride and the groom. This was a celebration for the whole community and you gave all the resources you could afford to this. And if the wine ran out early, that groom would be side-eyed by the rest of the community for a long time. So what Jesus is doing here also, he's creating wine to prolong a party. He's also sparing someone from societal ostracization. He doesn't want this groom to start off on the wrong foot in a marriage. And Jesus cares about your standing in society too, which is why so much of what Jesus does in the Gospels is disruptive to the people who set the societal standards and laws and inclusive for the people who are on the outside. So much of what Jesus does is bringing people in and knocking down the people who are creating the standards that kept those people out. That's not arbitrary. It's because Jesus cares about people being included in community. It matters to him. What else is Jesus doing? Jesus is honoring his mother's faith. Man. You know, Jesus wasn't lying when he said, my hour has not yet come. Jesus wasn't just saying that, but there was something about Mary's faith that caused Jesus to create something out of what was previously just water when he didn't previously intend to. What was it? There was something about Mary's intimacy with Jesus Because remember, this is his first public miracle. So Mary knows something that the other people don't know. And there undoubtedly have been other moments where Mary and... It wasn't like Jesus never went out in public for 30 years until his public ministry. No, Mary and Jesus were in public all the time together. But there was something about this moment that Mary knew something about Jesus' character because of the intimacy that Mary had with her son that she knew Jesus isn't going to leave it be. Even if his hour had not yet come, there's something in it. And I don't know what it is, but I know that it is encased in the intimacy in their relationship. And I think what that means for you and for me is that there are things that we come to know about God in intimacy that can unlock and unleash things on behalf of other people. 
that they don't yet see for themselves. Don't miss this, friends. That intimacy with Jesus is not just about you and him being close. But Jesus and Mary's intimacy now has spilled over to impact and affect all these other people who otherwise would not have been affected if Mary had not spoken up. If Mary had not, quote unquote, exercised her faith. Mary's faith triggered something because of the intimacy and the knowledge that she had with Jesus to change other people's lives. And that is no less true for you and for me. But the thing that I love perhaps most about what Mary says and what Mary does, man, this has, this has got me. What Mary says in verse 5 After Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, she doesn't argue with him. She doesn't try and strong arm him. She doesn't even speak back to him. Who does she speak to? The servants. There was something that Mary knew, that if Jesus was going to do anything at all, and clearly she believed he would, that it was going to involve those people. Who are the servants at a wedding? You've been to weddings large, ruckus weddings. The servants are the people you don't even know are there. The servants are the people who keep the glasses full, who clean the table as soon as your plate is empty, they've got it moved away because their whole job is to make sure that you have a good time so that the bride and the groom have a good time. And Mary knew if Jesus was going to do anything at all, it wouldn't be a spectacle that it would involve those people. And the fourth thing that I love about what Jesus does is he dignifies the servants. Now think about this. If Jesus could turn water into wine, couldn't he also fill empty jars with wine? If Jesus has power to turn water into wine, cannot he also fill empty jars with wine? Of course he can. But think about this. If Jesus threw God, go with me, we're going back Old Testament here for a couple of minutes, okay? If Jesus could turn Pharaoh's heart from stone into a heart of flesh, without Moses, why did he need Moses and his staff? If God could take down Goliath and the Philistines, why did he need David? Because God works with people. This is the way God has always worked from the beginning. The whole point, remember, John's point is that God draws us into his life. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Then why would he bring us into his life? Because he likes us. God wants to involve you. He wants your participation. Jesus didn't need the servants. You know how heavy those pots were? They're stone jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. This is real work for these guys. But in the end, they know the secret. They've been dignified. They've been brought in in a way that nobody else other than Mary and the disciples have been. Jesus involves the people that you would least expect him to involve in his work in the earth. And here's the good news. That's you and me. 
that's you and me. If Jesus involves the servants, that means he can do something with me, friends. That means he can do something with you. No one is disqualified from participation in the life of God. This one story shows us all that. And because it wasn't Acts 2, I didn't grow up hearing none of this. There's more. And I think we're probably going to skip the second half of this and we're going to land the plane sooner than later. The fifth thing, what is Jesus doing in this story? How is he showing us the grace that Jesus comes to bring? He's making a statement about the religion that he's bringing. Now, I know in many of our circles, we don't like the word religion. But religion, in this sense, the way that I'm using it, is the way that we relate to God. The posture and the things that we do to relate to God, Jesus is changing them. How do we know this? Because what does he use to do the miracle? He uses purification pots that were set aside for what was coming right after this, which was the Passover season, where the Jewish people would cleanse themselves before they would participate in Passover festivities. Jesus takes those things, which were historically filled with water to cleanse, and he brings about life-giving wine. And we talk about and sing about new wine all the time in charismatic circles. And we should. It's a wonderful thing. But sometimes what we miss is that what Jesus has done is Jesus has upended the religious ways of thinking, which tell us the best that we can do is be cleansed in God's presence. God, all we need you to do is take away our sin. And Jesus says, that's not near enough. There is so much more to what, that is literally ground zero. I take away your sin so you can relate to me again because what your sin is, you think it's what brings you shame. But what your sin actually is, is the thing that clogs the vessels where I'm trying to funnel my life into your life. And so I'm cleansing the sin, not just so you can have clean blood veins, but so that you can receive the life of God. So much of religious trapping is, God, all we need you to do is take away these things that we perceive to be bad, many of which actually are bad. And God says, I'm going to do that. But that's just the beginning of what I want to do for you. That's just the beginning of what I mean for my people. Friends, when we gather together, do we confess our sins? About 50% of the time we pray the prayer of confession, we do confess our sins. But it's so that we can be filled with the life of God and all the good things that he has for you. Jesus is upending the religion that these people had known about. And the last thing is Jesus is revealing his glory. Jesus is revealing his glory. Look at this, verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. But here's the thing. Who knew about it? Who knew about it? Just a handful of people. Mary and the disciples and the servants. Here's what I think we have to see. A couple of things about the glory of God. Number one, 
One, I love this. One scholar said, in this sign, there were no fireworks, only deep satisfaction. That many of us have intuited that what God wants most is to be famous. And that is just not true. God is not interested in fame for him or for you or for me. What God is interested in is sharing his life. And you know what happened? It got him killed. God is not interested in being famous. He's interested in his glory being revealed whether you recognize it or not. They received and experienced his glory. The text tells us and the story shows it. They enjoy the wine and the master of ceremonies goes, man, you you did this backwards, but we're super glad you did do this backwards because now the party's going on. They're experiencing God's glory and they don't yet know it's his glory. How much of our lives are the same? Where we are experiencing God's glory left and right all around us, in front of us, and it will be years, maybe into eternity before we're ever actually able to see it. Now, of course, we know that the book of John was written after this happened, but it tells us the disciples believed in him. And there would be moments coming where the disciples' belief in him would waver. But I think the disciples got a sneak peek here of this is a sign of what's coming. And the sign of what's coming is twofold. The first thing is this is what in eternity will be true for all of us. It's going to be a party And what previously we thought the best it could do was cleanse us. God's going to pour out his life. And all of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth are going to be better than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. Friends, that is what's coming. We can't see it right now because Paul says we're looking through a glass dimly. But there are stick figures that we can see on the other side. And they're dancing around. And they're at a wedding party. They're at a wedding feast. That's the great cloud of witnesses. And they're praying and they're saying, you guys just hold on. Because what's coming is better than you can imagine. So hold on, stay faithful, cling to Jesus. But here's the other thing the signs tell us. Jesus says in the beginning, my hour has not yet come. Do you know what the hour is? Basically every time in the book of John, it's the hour of the cross, the hour of the crucifixion. And there was a hint here at the very beginning of this story. We're about to land this plane. Seth, if you want to come up, go ahead, man. The first few words of John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, here's the thing. If you go back and you count, there are multiple times when John says the next day, the next day, the next day in John chapter 1. They don't add up to three He's using that phrase to tell us something. On the, at the third day, on the third day, John is writing this, remember, after this has all happened, the temple's been destroyed. The Christians are scattering. John's written this book so that people will believe they'll hold fast to Jesus. And John is saying, look, I know it looks bleak right now. The physical temple's been destroyed. Christians are scattering into the wilderness but there is a feast coming. There's a party coming. 
it just came and is coming in a way you didn't expect. You don't get the Jesus of the miracles and the signs without the Jesus of the cross. There is only one way to receive the new wine. There is only one way if we had time to receive and worship in the new temple. That's the second half of this chapter we're skipping for today, but I encourage you, go read it. And that is by believing in Jesus who went through a cross. And that same Jesus calls us to carry ours. Friends, stand with me. Man, I had so much more I was going to unpack, but I feel like this is what God wanted us to hear. This is what God wanted us to hear. Amen. So much of what happens in our lives, we never can anticipate. Good and for bad. Seth mentioned in worship about his wife having a stroke. Many of us in the room have lost dear loved ones, have gone through divorces, have been bankrupt. Tragedies happen around us literally more often than we can count. But the witness of the text and the witness of our hearts, the witness of our lives and the people's lives standing next to you is that Jesus is not finished yet. And on the other side of that cross, on the third day, there was something they never saw coming. And for you, friends, if you will hold on, there is goodness that you have never seen coming. There is goodness coming for you and through you. You've never expected. And so when we come to this communion table today, receive these elements, which in the natural will leave you hungry and thirsty. But in the spirit, God is nourishing you. And he's saying, you can hold on. You can keep going. And when you do, you'll wear a crown to throw at Jesus' feet. And we're going to party for all eternity together. Amen. Amen. That's good. Father, I ask that you would prepare our hearts today to receive this word and to trust that it is true for many in spite of circumstances. I pray that there would be an encounter with you soon, Jesus. Draw us into the kinds of encounters that Mary had had with you that unlock a depth of faith and trust that we've prayed for and maybe not experienced. But Lord, we need it and the world needs it. So I pray that as we come to this table today, that it would nourish our faith. We ask it trusting in the name of Jesus. Friends, come to this table, the table of the Lord, not just the table of the church. Exit out the left. Yeah, I'll give these guys 30 more seconds. Sorry, next time I'll do a better job cueing you. <laughs> Exit out the left-hand side of your rows. Come to the table of the Lord and receive these elements as nourishment to your bodies. Come to the table.
It's interesting. I don't, some of you are going to hear this heretically. I don't mean it that way. I promise. I'm not trying to get fired. Jesus is the center, whether we like it or not. But Jesus doesn't want to be at the center alone. That's the thing about Jesus. He wants all of us to be there with him, right in the center of where is Jesus? The life of God. So many times we think what Jesus wants is for us to just not care about anything else than him. And what Jesus is saying, no, I want you to care about all these other things. Because I care about all these other things. I want you to care about your neighbor, the person next to you that's hurting. And our intimacy is meant to unleash faith in you to touch them. And here's the beauty that this occurred to me. That, that almost everything God ever does, he draws us in to participate with. Even the miracle of communion, of Eucharist. 
bread doesn't just show up on the tables, right? Even thinking figuratively about bread, God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the wheat to grow, but then what happens? Human hands come and gather the wheat and make it bread and offer it as a gift to God so that God can turn around and make it a better gift back to us. Once again, it's the same thing with the servants in this story. So friends, what is in your hand? Right now is the body of Christ broken for you. For I have received, Paul says, from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us receive the body of Christ for you and for me. I got entirely too large a piece. (laughs) I need water to flush it down. All right. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new wine in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let us receive the blood of Christ, the new wine shed for the remission of our sins and the life of God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Well, let us respond with a song of thanksgiving, son. Praise God, whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son. It has been good for us to be gathered as the people of God and the house of God. And now the Spirit sends us back out into the world. Ones who are full of the new wine, the life of God, go release it to all the people you touch today. Go in peace and go sign up for a table group. Amen. We'll see you next week.